just going to take a moment to introduce our speaker. Then we're going to have a special guest soloist to come forward. And um, I just want you to know that I, some of you may know that I'm one of these people, I have a little bit of a hybrid, hybrid personality. I'm one of these people I get excited. I actually surf YouTube about all kinds of leadership. You know, I look at leadership from not just the pastoral side, but I like watching uh, how Navy SEALs train. I, it's just one of those things that excites me. And um, I have, from a distance, uh, watched my brother uh, John shoot as a leader uh, in so many ways. So I have been excited for quite some time that he decided to join us and to share part of his faith story. He has served in a variety of capacities, uh, coaching collegiate and NFL players. Uh, he is also a man who has a passion for social justice. Uh, he's very vocal and presents the gospel in a powerful way. Uh, I'm not gonna try to share all of his great accolades, but I want you to know, John, we're, we're excited. I am pumped up to have you here today. I've known uh, his beloved wife, Marsha, for a number of years, and it was through Marsha that I was introduced to John, and I have been reading about you, listening to you, and following you online for quite a while sometimes, so John, we are excited to have you here today. Let's give the Lord a hand for Brother John, who's going to come and speak. John, give us, give us just a minute. And I'm going to put one brother on the spot. As John prepares to come forward, I'm going to ask my my friend, special man and vocalist, uh, Brother Maurice, to come forth and bless us with a solo. And after this solo, after this uh, solo, we will hear uh, a word from the Lord through our brother John. And if you want a mic, we have a mic for you. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, definitely put on the spot. <laughs> he invited me yesterday, and uh, we were just talking about some things, and um, we had prayer on the phone. And um, I'm just, you know, just by way of testimony, it's just God allows certain things to just come into your life really fast sometimes. But it's, it's important for us to be grounded in the word of God and in him and in faith. So some things that may come, we may think kind of will rock our worlds, but because we have the faith in God, and if he's done it before, Amen. if he set us free before, and if he brought us out of storms before, he'll do it again. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm grateful, you know, just to be here and just to fellowship. Um, I had the opportunity to write a song. Um, uh, a CD came out about a year ago, and the song says, I can't live without you. And... Um, Pretty much the song was my testimony unto God. And so just, just take a listen to the words uh, of the song. My protector, you are a shield for me. Though the weapons may form, they will not harm me. You're my provider. You meet my every need. 
It's a blessing just to know you're always here with me. Because all my hopes and dreams are closer with you. I can face the stormy weather with you. There are no more lonely days or nights with you. I'm nothing without you. Can't make it without you. I can't live without you. I can't live without you. I can't live. I can't live without you. I can't live without you. I can't live. You're a healer of my heart, my mind, and my soul. If you ever took your hands off me, Lord, where would I go now and forever? I'll always mention your name. Since the day you came into my life, Lord, you never changed. Because all my hopes and dreams are closer with you. I can face the stormy weather with you. There are no more lonely days or nights with you. Said I'm nothing without you. Can't make it without you. I can't live without you. I can't live without you. I can't live my, can't live without you. I can't live without you. Can't live. Lord, you hold me together when things fall apart. And you have been my shelter in the storm. No more lonely days or nights with you. I said I'm nothing without you, can't make it without you, I can't live without you, I can't live without you, I can't live without you. said I'm so excited thank you brother Maurice um, I want to invite brother John shoot to come forth as he's coming forth I ask that you stretch your hands out towards him stretch your hands out towards John as he comes forth and repeat after me Lord bless, Lord bless. brother John one more time. Lord bless. Lord bless. Brother John. Brother John. One more time. Lord bless. Brother John. Amen. Amen is right. Gosh. What a good feeling. Thank you very much. And Maurice, thanks. That gave me confidence coming up here. I feel the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you. Um well, thank you for having me here. This is, a, this is a great, great privilege for me. And Well, uh, I just hope, well, I just know that the Holy Spirit is with me and hope we can have a good message together. 
I, uh, I grew up in a small town called Oakmont, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oakmont had an unusual culture. Down below the tracks was Edgewater Steel. Edgewater Steel was a steel mill right on the Allegheny River. And so uh, a lot of the population in my hometown uh, was blue collar, tough guys, Iron City beer drinking men who worked in the steel mill at odd hours. In Oakmont, up on the hill, on the other side of the town, was Oakmont Country Club. Oakmont Country Club is the poshest of posh country clubs that there is. Uh, the golf course at Oakmont, every five years, hosts either the US Open or the PGA. Uh, Oakmont Country Club is uh, the definition of exclusivity. And that, too, was in our hometown of Oakmont. So in some ways, Oakmont kind of had a diverse community. But there's one thing everybody could agree on in the 70s and in the 80s, just outside of Pittsburgh, and that was sports. In fact, I'm here to tell you that in 1979, I was 10 years old, the 79-80 school year for me was the most formative year of my life. The Pittsburgh Steelers in 1979 were led by the Steel Curtain. They won their fourth Super Bowl that year, beating the LA Rams. Uh, Danny Marino was a local hero in Pittsburgh, lived just in the neighborhood down from us, and he was the quarterback, all-American quarterback for the Pitt Panthers, an idol of mine. It was the same winter where uh, the miracle on ice occurred at Lake Placid. There were some wonderful teams, uh, and the U.S. hockey team beat Russia and went on to win the gold medal. So it was a great time to be a sports nut, but there was one team that in particular caught my fancy just grabbed my heart unlike any others, and that's the 1979 world champion, Pittsburgh Pirates. Now think about this, the Pittsburgh Pirates, batting leadoff was a center fielder out of Panama. His name was Omar Marino. Batting second was the shortstop, Tim Foley. Tim Foley was a golden boy from Southern California, actually had a football scholarship to go play at SC. Batting third was the right fielder, guy named Dave the Cobra Parker. Now Dave Parker was born in East Clanton, Mississippi. He grew up in Cincinnati. He used to smoke in the dugout. That's what kind of bad dude he was. <laughs> Willie Pops Stargell was the captain of the team. He played first base. He was out of Oklahoma. Batting fifth, it depended on who the opposing team had pitching, but it could have been Bill Robinson, who was a native of Pittsburgh, or it could have been John the Hammer Milner, out of East Point, Georgia. Bill Mad Dog Madlock out of Memphis, Tennessee and traded in mid-season from the Chicago Cubs, batted in the six hole. Batting seventh was either Steve Nicosia and catching, was Steve Nicosia out of Patterson, New Jersey or Ed Ott out of Muncie, Pennsylvania. And my favorite player hit eighth and played second base, Scrap Iron, Phil Gardner out of Jefferson City, Tennessee. Now the pitching unit for that team there's a point in all this. The pitching unit for that team uh, had was kind of made up of six different pitchers, the pitching rotation, and six different pitchers of this ragtag group had at least 10 wins throughout the season. They were led by a guy named John the Candyman Candelaria out of Brooklyn, New York, 
And anybody that followed baseball knows that the closure of the 1979 Pirates was teeth. Kent Tacovey, who threw sidearm and played Division III baseball in Marietta, Ohio. So those 12 players made up the core of this team that really impacted the rest of my life. Those 12 players came from 10 states. Those 12 players had eight different nicknames. Of those 12 players, six of them were black, six of them were white. Those 12 players, they were born in four different decades. Those 12 players were part of one team. In fact, if you're a fan of baseball, you know that this team, the 1979 World Champion Pirates, they weren't even called a team. If you're a fan, you know that the team had a nickname. They were called the family. The family, Sister Sledge came and sang in the World Series. So at age 10, I realized it's okay to be absolutely nuts about sports. It's okay. I lived in a city where everybody was nuts about it. And I also realized this, the only place that everybody in our community congregated was either at a gym or a ball field. That's the only place where everybody got together. And I'm talking about generational diversity, I'm talking about uh, racial diversity, I'm talking about economic diversity, whatever type of diversity you could think of, the only place that it all intersected was in a gym or at a ball field. And I realized this, I liked being around different kinds of people. I liked it, I liked it a lot. Unwittingly, I was being stretched, I was being pulled, I was being prodded into finding comfort among different. Now, I don't know what the politics were at the time, and I couldn't have told you when I was 10 years old how anybody in our uh, town voted. But I can tell you this, on our teams, everybody seemed to get what they need. If Eddie needed some shoes for basketball, somehow Eddie had some shoes. If Tom needed a new mitt in baseball season, Tom had a new mitt in baseball season. And if Frank Viscardo needed a special helmet because his head was as big as T-Rex for football, we special ordered a helmet for him. Somehow, some way, everybody in our town seemed to get what they need. So on our teams seemed to get what they need. So just as we go through here, anytime that I say the word team, anytime that I'm talking about a word team, I want you to feel free to substitute the word community, and I think we'll remain on point. Now, I didn't golf at Oakmont. There's no reward for hustle in the sport of golf, and it's probably the only redeeming quality that I have as an athlete, but I did grow up caddying up there. I caddied every day and I saved a lot of money as a caddy. And so going into my freshman year of high school, I made the decision uh, I was gonna go to a football camp at Geneva College. I was gonna go to a football camp in Geneva, Pennsylvania, at Geneva College, and I chose this particular camp because some of the Pittsburgh Steelers were gonna be the counselors there. I figured I plan on playing for the Steelers someday. This will be a good way to get to know some of my future teammates. Now the first thing we did at this camp was we had a meal. 
And then after the meal, they said, we're going to break up into huddle groups. We're going to break up into huddle groups. And I thought, well, this is sweet. It'll be a little bit of chalk talk. I'm going to impress these guys with some of my football knowledge and get off on the right foot. Felt good about it. My huddle group leaders were a wide receiver, a rookie from the University of Washington. His name was Paul Scancy, and a guy named Ron Wolfley, a special teams demon and fullback. Now, Paul was a common-looking fellow. As I reflect back, he kind of looked remarkably like a not-yet-famous Kevin Costner. And Ron Wolfley was an unusually muscular dude. He had a receding hairline. He had dual exhaust coming out the back. He had a bandana on, T-back tank top, Zubas. He had zits all over his body. The biggest, the biggest traps and lats I'd ever seen. Kind of an intimidating guy. And as we circled up and were on the ground, Ron started looking around. And he's making eye contact with everyone. Ron got right up in my grill right up in my grill. And he said, there's a war going on for your soul. I know what he was talking about. He said, the devil and God are doing battle right now for your heart. I said, they are? I, I, I was stunned. I, I didn't know what was going on. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. They're split, spit flying. And he says, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision if you're going to burn in hell or not. I'm 13 years old. I have no idea what we're even talking about right now. He's screaming, and I'm scared half to death. Ron went on in this huddle talk, yelling and screaming and talking to the uh, different players about this, uh, uh, this, this battle going on for our soul. Well, I think Paul could see that I was in a bit of a state of shock. And after it, Paul grabbed me. He said, hey, John, let's go take a walk. He said, you know, here's how I experience God. God comforts me. You know, this is my first time ever being out east. I'm from the state of Washington, and God's with me. I'm about to get married in a month, and I'm scared half to death, but I know God is with me. I'm the eighth best wide receiver on a team that's going to keep four, but I know God's with me. And it's going to work out. And it took me walking around campus just talking to me about his relationship with God. Now, I don't know if I found religion or not during that camp. But I know this. Paul had something that I wanted. He had what religious types might call the peace that passes understanding. I wanted that. If it meant I was going to be a Christian, then I was going to be a Christian. But I wanted that peace that Paul had. And I remember thinking to myself, I remember thinking at that moment how cool it is that God talks to Ron in a way that Ron can hear, in a language that makes sense to Ron. It didn't necessarily strike a chord with me, but what a big God, I thought. What a big God that in that same huddle group, bam, God was able to reach me and speak a language that I kind of understood. I think it's appropriate, really, when you read the book of Acts and on Pentecostal Sunday, that you realize God can speak in a lot of different languages in a lot of different ways. So 
That big happy family, that eclectic crew of the 79 pirates was informative, but I also got this sense of what a big tent, what a big tent that this God that Paul talked about must pitch. I knew I had a brush with the divine at that camp, and I had some work to do. That summer, I read the Bible cover to cover going into the ninth grade. I went to church every Sunday on my own, and I went to Sunday school every Sunday on my own. My family is what Marsha calls priesters, Christmas and Easter is when they're the only time they'd go. So I'd go on my own. I was on a search for that peace that passes understanding. I went on to study religion in college. I went on to study religion at Oxford University where I met my wife, who's a PhD in religious studies and is a fourth generation ordained minister. This was a, this was a journey I was taking seriously. So fast forward about a dozen years or so, and I got the break of a lifetime. I was offered a job as a 25-year-old to go coach for the Carolina Panthers in 1995. The Carolina Panthers were an expansion team, and it was their first year in existence. I poured my heart and soul into that job. In fact, we got really good really fast. For those of you old enough to remember, 1996, we went, we went 12 and four, won our division, went to the NFC Championship game, and our quarterback, the guy I was coaching, Kerry Collins, went to the Pro Bowl. My career kind of started to take off. By the time I was age 30, I was the offensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears. My first year as the coordinator there, we went 13 and three in 2001 and won the division championship. What a feeling when we clinched that division championship in January to be in the middle of Soldier Field and get a Gatorade back. <laughs> it was a warm feeling even in January. But I'll tell you this, all was good in the world. Money and recognition help, there's no doubt. But as fast as things can get good in the NFL, they can get bad. So we started the 2003 season 0-2. And, and then we were playing Monday night in the home opener in the newly renovated Soldier Field. And we were playing Green Bay and Brett Favre, which if you know, Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers or arch rivals unlike any rivalry I've ever seen. That includes Duke, UNC, NC State, North Carolina. That includes any rivalry I've ever seen. Well, we lost that game to drop to 0-3. We lost 38 to 23. So walking off the field that night, I'll never forget walking in the tunnel. I get a beer poured over my head, and I look up and I see myself hung in effigy. So it's about, it's about 1.30 in the morning when I finally get to my car after a Monday night game, and I got an hour long drive back up to the northern suburbs. I felt alone. Marsha was, was pregnant with our second child, so it wasn't worthwhile for her to come to such a late game. Heck, I had to be at work at 5 the next morning. I was feeling about as low as you could feel. This was 2003. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. The radio was off. I drove in silence. This is when I had my second brush with the divine. My conversation with Paul Scancy at that camp nearly 20 years ago replayed. 
It replayed in my heart again and again. You're never alone. God's always with you, Paul said. Marcia, Marcia, my wife, helped me to understand that this never alone feeling is God's promise of proximity. That is that God's always with you. I was comforted to know that when I was sad, God was sad with me. When I was disappointed, God was disappointed with me. And when I felt alone, like you said, Maurice, in the lyrics of the song, I wasn't alone. God was right there with me. And so on this hour-long drive home in the middle of the night, I pictured kind of like the Holy Spirit resting on my shoulder like you might have in the movies. You know how like when an angel pops on your shoulder? That's the energy that I felt of the Holy Spirit. So living with the knowledge of God's promise of proximity was another step towards finding that peace that passes understanding. Now, I bounced around in the NFL for a few more years, coached with Tampa Bay Buccaneers and John Gruden, Oakland Raiders and Al Davis. But after the 2006 season, after the 2006 season, I didn't sign a new contract with the Oakland Raiders. You see, the NFL, the NFL was changing, and I could see it. I was into a team-centric sport, and the NFL was really becoming where every player and every coach was an individual contractor. You didn't root for teams anymore. You rooted for people because of fantasy football. Coaches were getting clauses put in their contracts that didn't have anything to do with wins. They just had to do with how many yards we can gain, which if you think about it, the game of football, American football, is the only sport in the world where the same people don't play offense as play defense. And so morale is really delicate. It's really delicate. And frankly, I was falling out of love with the sport that I had fallen in love with. I was looking for something team-centric. I was looking for something community-centric. So we decided to give college a try. I had a number of interviews set up. And the first interview was with a man who was newly hired at the University of North Carolina. His name was Butch Davis. And this is what Butch said to me on the interview. He said, if you come to North Carolina, you'll be the husband that you hope to be. You'll be the dad that you want to be, and you'll be the coach that you dream of being. I didn't go interview anywhere else. Signed a contract right there and said I'm in. For three seasons, we, built, we rebuilt that program, and my experience was exceeding my expectations. I was the husband, the father, and the coach that I wanted to be. We were getting real good, and after the 2009 season, we were about to make a run at the national championship. We were preseason, going into the 2010 season, we were preseason number five in the country. Coach Davis had done a great job of talking a number of players on our team into returning to school for one more year. Instead of jumping to the NFL and signing some seven-year, seven-figure contracts. We were going to open up the season against LSU in the Chick-fil-A Bowl, and we were doing this. 
Now in July of 2010, about eight weeks before, about eight weeks before that LSU game, I was on vacation at Sunset Beach, North Carolina, when Butch Davis called me. He said, John, you gotta come to the office, we have a problem. Three of those returning players that he had talked into coming back had gone to a party in Miami, hosted by an agent. If you live in this area, I'm sure you know something about it. <laughs> this was a serious violation, and I knew it. These three guys going, and I thought to myself, nuts. There's gonna, there's gonna be a blow because we're about to be really good and these are good players. Chancellor Holden Thorpe then came to my office and told me, John, we're gonna take care of this, you just keep working. The athletic director at that time, a man named Dick Bedore, he came to my office. He said, John, the administration, everybody, we're gonna handle the investigation. You, you just keep working. You make sure that we're a good football team. And I did my job. In that season, we beat Florida State, we beat Clemson, we beat Tennessee. But as the season progressed, that list of suspended players, it swelled from three to 18. There were more twists and turns going on in this investigation than any novel I'd ever read. Frankly, frankly, I was kind of disappointed I recruited many of these players. I assumed that if a player was suspended by the university, they must have done something wrong. However, as the investigation drug on, and some might say it's still dragging on if you read the news, something smelled rotten to me. And it was Thanksgiving dinner in 2010, that same season. We'd invite all the players that we recruited over to our house for dinner. Now, there was a gag rule. I, everybody was told you're not allowed to talk about this with anybody else. And we did. Nobody talked about it. I had blinders on and all I was doing was coaching football. We didn't talk about it until we did. Until those players were sitting at our dining room table. Here's what I heard. Hey coach, they told me to admit guilt, even though I didn't do anything. Just admitting guilt would get me on the field faster, they told me. This particular player that did this, he took the administration's advice. He was banned for life by the university and the NCAA. Hey, coach, they told me if I got a lawyer, I'd only look more guilty, so I didn't get one. I mean, it's not that I was lying. It's just that I was in a room and sitting across this table were 12 old white guys in suits. I, I, I wasn't trying to lie, I was just trying to tell them what they wanted to hear. I, I know that I messed up. This player was banned for life by the university and the NCAA. Now understand, I'm a white guy from a pretty privileged background. I didn't know this stuff really happened. And when I went to Butch to talk about it, he told me the story of the first player that went to him. The first player that went to him 
and then started the whole party down in Miami thing. This player went to Butch. He was one of the players that we talked into returning, so he didn't go take a seven-figure contract. He said to Butch, Butch, I need money to send home to my family. The electricity's about to be turned off, and I got two young siblings. Butch said, I told him I couldn't give him the money. Instead, we prayed. Later that day, walking across campus, that same player was approached by an agent. That agent said, I hear you're having some family problems. I'll help you. I'll pay, for, I'll, pay, I'll pay to keep your mom's electricity on if you'll come to my party in Miami and invite some of your friends. This young man made the decision to keep the electricity on for his mom and his two younger brothers. Now, now I tell my teenage son, you can't say you're polite if you don't use please and thank you. I tell players that I coach, you can't say that you're a disciplined player if you jump off sides twice a half. And I can remember thinking to myself, that night, that Thanksgiving night, I can't say I'm a Christian and be apathetic to the needs of others on my team, in my community. For so long as that promise of proximity comforted me in difficult times, Thanksgiving 2010, it became a burden. That angel on my shoulder, who'd often have his hand on my back, just rubbing it, saying we're gonna be all right, that angel was on my shoulder, was asking me, what are you gonna do? I know what I wanted to do. I want to pretend like I didn't see it. I want to turn around and pretend like I didn't see the injustice. I wanted to buy into the university's narrative of it's just a few bad apples and once we get rid of them, we're gonna press restart and move on. Well, they got rid of the head coach, they got rid of the staff, they got rid of the AD, they got rid of the chancellor, they got rid of every administrator, it's still going on. The problem was those bad apples weren't bad apples, they were good apples, I recruited them. I was the one who sat in those players' living rooms and I said to them this. I said, if you come to the University of North Carolina, Mookie Highsmith, if you come to the University of North Carolina, I'm gonna care for you as if you're my own son. Well, if someone's not representing my son's interest and tells him just admit guilt, I think I'd step in and say, hold on, hold on. If my son was about to enter a hearing that would determine whether he could continue to pursue his lifelong dream without an advocate, I'd make sure he had an advocate. I'd make sure of it. And if my family was cold in the middle of winter, I wouldn't build a putt-putt golf course or a giant slide in a $100 million player's lounge like they did at Clemson and tell them we do so much for you already. 
Perhaps you surmised this, but of the 18 players, all 18 of them were black. University administrator told me it's just coincidence. I'm here to tell you that I believe in my heart and soul that 15 of those 18 players did nothing. And I'm here to tell you nothing wrong. Three players went to a party. They did. That's a violation. So eight days before the 2011 season, our head football coach, Butch Davis, got fired. Butch Davis is a good man, and I'm here to tell you he didn't do anything wrong. I'm here to tell you. And I'm sure there's some state fans here that hate him. I get it. But I'm here to tell you he didn't do anything wrong. So when they fired him, they effectively fired me, although I had to coach through the 2011 season as a lame duck coach. In 2012, I took a year off from coaching to continue advocating for college athletes that I recruited and I loved. Until the last player that I made a promise to was cared for, my family and I weren't going to leave Chapel Hill. So in December of 2012, took a year off from coaching, we had a graduation party for a young man named Devin Ramsey. Devin was one of those players, was the player who was told to admit guilt and got banned for life. He got reinstated with the help of Bob Orr, a former Supreme Court Justice here in the state of North Carolina. Took a lot of work, but he got reinstated. Today, Devin Ramsey is a stockbroker in Manhattan. It's a long way from being uh, academically ineligible. So after he graduated, within a week I was offered a job and I decided to go to Purdue University, but I was a changed man. I was different. I had a new mantra. My mantra was start at fair and go from there. Now our team at Purdue wasn't great and I found myself advocating hard for collegiate athletes that were facing what I thought were unfair circumstances. I fought to reduce an unfair suspension for our starting left tackle from six to three games and then disappointed that it wasn't zero. I fought for a freshman wide receiver that the NCAA recommended to the university he should be suspended for his entire freshman year. We fought it. He played his freshman year. I advocated for players to get more access to food after spending the evening with a player who couldn't go home over spring break. And in the last 48 hours, the only thing he had to eat was a bag of Skittles. But the stuff really hit the fan when I sided with two brilliant Purdue engineers who were doing cutting work, cutting edge work on concussions and desperately wanted to help our football team. Our athletic director rejected their continued offers for reasons that remain unclear to me. And I was constantly being called to the carpet of our head coach and the athletic director to stop. You can't change a billion dollar industry, they told me. The problem is I couldn't quit. The problem is I had this angel sitting here saying, what are you gonna do? And when a mother called me, when a mother called me of a player who, who had a serious concussion, severe concussion uh, in, in the Iowa game, he was suffering bad, had some bad symptoms. 
I recruited him and his mother called me. She didn't call the AD, she didn't call the head coach, she didn't call the trainer, she called me. She said, John, is, the, is Purdue doing everything for my son that they can? I told her no. I was fired within a month. Now there's not a real tidy ending to this, but a friend of mine, Joe Nocera, he was a columnist for the New York Times. He now writes for the Bloomberg News. He wrote a lot about the NCAA, and he, he once told me, as far as issues go, this stuff really isn't that important. And I took exception. Here's what I've dealt with in the last 26 years of coaching. Here's what I've dealt with in the last year. Due process, higher education, addiction, racism and white supremacy culture, violence against women, long-term health care, poverty, health and wellness. I think those are the most important issues of the day. I think those are the most important issues of the day. Like I said, it's not a tidy ending here. This isn't going to be wrapped up all nice and neat. Perhaps there's no ending in sight. Right now, I live on a small farm in Fletcher, North Carolina, out in the mountains. For the first time in 26 years, I didn't coach last year, and I'm a trailing spouse. We moved to Asheville because of my wife's job. She's the head of staff at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church there. And I'm the lead parent when it comes to organizing schedules for two teenage kids. <laughs> I'm a deacon at a church. I about to volunteer throughout the city for as many things as I possibly can. And I've applied to Buncombe County High Schools to become a social studies teacher. But I'm standing here in the need of prayer. It's a tough transition after 26 years. You know, Marcia preached this morning on Pentecostal Sunday. She preached, don't deny the Holy Spirit, surrender to it. And so, Bruce, I thank you for having me out here. Since I retired from coaching, this is only the second time that I've gone to speak somewhere. And I'm going to pray for the courage to do it more. I'm going to pray to be a voice for some people that don't have a voice, to advocate for people that might not have an advocate. But I'm going to need y'all's help. I'm going to need your prayers. Because I'm going to tell you, apathy, apathy is easy. Apathy is seductive. Sometimes I just want to turn around and forget about it. I live on a nice farm, and I could go work out there with the horses all day long and not think about any of this stuff. But then that angel pops back up on my shoulder and says, what are you going to do? You're just going to turn around. You're going to let that happen? That guy called you, man. He needs help. So I hope you'll pray for me. And I want to thank you. It's a big deal for me to come out here. And I know that every little time I do it, I'm going to get some more courage, some more courage. My voice is going to get louder, and it's going to get louder. And I thank you for your time.
you've been blessed this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brother John, for that powerful testimony. I needed that. And I don't think I'm the only one. Amen. Why don't we take a moment? We're going to transition, but we're going to just take a moment to, um, to pray for John and for this message. Is that all right? All right. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your servant. We thank you for the word that you have spoken through him. We thank you for how your spirit continues to move upon him. We ask that you would uphold him. God, that you would cover him under the shadow of your wings. That you would bless him and Marcia and their children. And God, that you will continue to be their guide, their anchor, and their strength. Lord, we thank you once again for what you've done through John and what you're doing and what you're going to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, I am abundantly, abundantly blessed. John, thank you.